your Bibles to James chapter 5. James chapter 5, and we left off in verse 12. If you don't have a Bible, we've got some Bibles in the back that we'd love to be able to give to you, and feel free to take that home with you and have a Bible and be able to study at home and study here at the church as well. So James chapter 5, verse 12. Let's read from verse 12 down to verse 20, and then we'll pray. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the air of his ways will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Let's pray together. Fathers, we open up your word this morning. We're so thankful for it. We're thankful for the book of James, for the opportunity to be able to study it. And this morning, we ask that you would speak to our hearts, that you would touch us, that you would cause us to be open with you and open with one another, that you give us ears to hear and hearts to understand. We ask that the Holy Spirit would just have permission to reign here, permission to do work in our hearts and lives, to lead us and guide us into all truth. We focus upon you, Jesus. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Coaches are known for their speeches. If you're an athlete and you grew up playing sports, maybe there's one or two pep talks that you got from a coach that stands out in your mind. There's also some famous speeches given by coaches throughout history, sports history. And one of them was by Herb Brooks, and he coached the 1980 Olympics team, the hockey team. It's referred to the miracle on ice. They're playing the Soviet Union. It was a medal round, not the gold medal round, but leading up to the gold medal round. And the Soviets had won every gold medal since 1954. This is 1980. It's before we allowed our professional athletes to play in the Olympics. So it's amateurs and college athletes. And Herb sits in the locker room, and we have what he said to his players. And so I'll read it to you. Great moments are born from great opportunity. And that's what you have here tonight, boys. That's what you've earned here tonight. One game, if we played them ten times, they might win nine. But not this game, not tonight. Tonight we skate with them. Tonight we skate with them. We'll shut them down because we can. Tonight we are the greatest hockey team in the world. You were born to be hockey players, every one of you, and you were meant to be here tonight. This is your time. Their time is done. It's over. I'm sick and tired of hearing about what a great hockey team the Soviets have. This is your time. Now go out there and take it. You may be asking, well, what does that have to do with our Bible study this morning? Absolutely nothing. It's just for free. 
Now, as we've been studying the book of James, we know that James is that spiritual coach. He really does remind me of a football coach, a basketball coach, a hockey coach. And like any good coach, he's saying, come on, now's the time. Here's the truth. Now go out and do it. I don't know if you found the book of James to be challenging, but I sure have. He's saying, put the truth of God into action. And this morning, we have the final instructions of James. This is his final speech that he is giving to us. And if you're taking notes, it covers three areas. And the first is to remember integrity, to let your yes be yes and your no be no. And then the second thing that we look at is to respond correctly. Different circumstances, different situations, but how we respond. And then the last one is to rescue humbly. And so let's get into these final instructions from Coach James in verse 12 of James 5. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. James says, but above all, brethren, that is important. He's saying, this is something to not miss. If you remember the context of this chapter, it's that Christ is coming soon, that the judge is at the door. So knowing that Christ is coming soon, we get to our first point, remember integrity, that your commitments are important. And what we're instructed is, is that we shouldn't swear by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. What was happening in the Jewish community was your commitment was only good if you swore in God's name. So if you attached God's name to your commitment, not swearing in like a cuss word, but if you said, you know, I'm going to be there Friday night, I'm committing by the name of Christ, then you'd know that someone was coming. But if they didn't include the name of God, then it really wasn't a binding oath. And James is saying that's not the way it's supposed to be. You shouldn't have to use God's name in order for it to be a commitment. It's kind of this idea of, well, I'm going to be there. I'm swearing on my mother's grave. No, no, you shouldn't have to swear on your mother's grave. Just leave her alone, right? You know, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. So in order for us to have integrity and remember our integrity in this is we have to take the time to count the cost and evaluate our commitments before we say yes. And we live in a time and we live in a culture where our word really doesn't mean anything. That a lot of times what people say, we don't necessarily believe. We're always having to ask the question, is this true or is this a person of integrity? And that should not be the case amongst the people of God. When we say yes, we should fulfill that commitment. When we say no, we should fulfill that commitment. We should not be wishy-washy and saying, well, I said no to you, but now I'm going to say yes, and I'm going to go back, and I'm going to go forward. For some, this may be a word that you have difficulty saying. It's very small. It's two letters. It's no. You're the type of person that if there's a need, you feel like you've got to fulfill it. So you say yes to everything. The danger with that is, is you may have put yourself in a place where you're overcommitted, right? And you can't actually fulfill the things that you have committed to. Jesus said no at times in his ministry, didn't he? People had ideas of what they thought Jesus should do. And he says, no, I've prayed about it. I've thought about it. And this is what I need to be doing. So I'm saying no to this in order to say yes to this other thing. So when you're evaluating commitments, I think a couple of things are helpful. First is to take the time to pray about it, to honestly pray about it. 
Not just say, I'm gonna pray about it, but take it before the Lord and say, God, would you have me to, to do this? If you're married, checking in with your spouse. A lot of times, you know, in checking in with Amber, I discover, oh yeah, this is a great thing to do, or no, there's no way that I can actually fulfill this or accomplish this. This is something that I need to say no to. But if we don't take the time to do that, we can find ourselves in a place where we're not fulfilling our word. How about you? How about me? How good is your word? What's the value of your word? When you tell your kids, hey, I'm going to do this with you. I'm going to play this game with you, or we're going to play catch, or I'm going to be at your basketball game, or I'm going to take you to go get your driver's license, or whatever the different things that we've committed to in, in their lives. Are we fulfilling those commitments? Are we person of our word? Or do our friends and family members know if they said they're going to be there, they're really not going to be there. And if they said they're not coming, they're probably going to show up. That's not the place that we want to be in. The end of verse 12 tells us, lest you fall into judgment. When Christ comes, he is going to judge our lives. Not for salvation. Salvation is found in the finished work of Jesus Christ. But our life is going to be run through a fire for reward. It's the Bema seat judgment. It's the reward seat judgment. And the motivation for being a person of our word is because Christ is going to return. First and foremost, my integrity is between me and Christ, even before it's between me and someone else. The words of James also echo the words of Christ in the Sermon on the Mount. I'll read to you from Matthew 5. Again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall remember your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by earth, for it's his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. We've kind of cheated on that, haven't we? We've found a way around that. But let your yes be yes, and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Christ says anything more than this, or less than this, than yes, being yes and no being no is from the evil one. Now, sometimes there's real life situations that happen that prevent us from fulfilling our commitments, and that's different. But if things are going as planned and we don't show up, we don't fulfill our commitment, then we need to alter our lives. We need to bring it into James 5 verse 12 and being a person of integrity. Our second point this morning is to respond correctly. It's interesting, you probably noticed as we read through this section just a moment ago, that you've got four different people and they're going through four different circumstances. So there's different responses that they're to have. This morning, there's a variety of circumstances. For some, things are going great. You're having one of the best times and mornings of your life. For some, you're in a time of affliction some sickness, the list goes on and on. But the important thing is how do we respond? Even more important than what happens to us, it's how we respond to those circumstances. And we can respond correctly, and each response has a response of faith. The key ingredient is faith and trusting in the Lord. So verse 13, <clears throat> if anyone among you, is anyone among you suffering, let him pray. Is anyone suffering this morning? Is anyone afflicted this morning? I'm sure the answer is yes. Then the response is to pray and to cry out to, to the Lord. 
when we go through difficulty, and we will, because Jesus said, in this life, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. Haven't you found life to give plenty of tribulation and plenty of affliction? We're going to run to something. We're going to look to someone or something to be our refuge. Maybe destructive things. It may be sinful behavior. Maybe drugs. It may be alcohol. It may be relationships that are ungodly. It may be pornography. It's, it can be a list of things. Maybe we run to work. It's not necessarily a, a destructive thing in and of ourselves, but we try to escape in our work from the affliction that we're in. Maybe we just shut down and withdraw and we go to the numb state. I feel nothing. I think nothing. I'm just kind of unplugging. And those are not the responses that God would have for us. The response that we're to have in affliction is pray, to cry out to the Lord, to allow God to be our refuge. I love the Psalms. And this morning, if this is fitting for you and you find yourself in affliction and suffering and it's difficult to even be here this morning, is read through the Psalms, study the Psalms, pray through the Psalms, because so many of the Psalms are where they're getting their cans kicked. Talk about affliction, and they're very honest about their pain, and they're crying out to the Lord for help and deliverance. And I'd like to read Psalm 61, the first few verses. It says, Hear my cry, O God. Attend to my prayer. From the end of the earth I will cry to you. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that's higher than I. For you have been a shelter for me, a strong tower from the enemy. I will abide in your tabernacle forever. I will trust in the shelter of your wings. Psalm 61 for me has been an anchor for my soul in times of difficulty, to pray through it. And what I'm so comforted by in Psalm 61 is the psalmist is saying, I can't even find the rock on my own. I need you, God, my good shepherd, Jesus to come and lead me to the rock. And the rock is that place of perspective. It's a place of security. And maybe you feel that this morning. Jesus, I need you to lead me through this storm. I'm overwhelmed and I'm confused. So you take a psalm like Psalm 61 and you just begin to pray it in your own words. Verse 1 said, Hear my cry, O God, attend unto my prayer. Father, would you please listen to me? I know you hear my prayers, but I, I need you to listen. Would you please Allow my prayers to be on your heart and on your mind. I'm in a place where I'm overwhelmed. I don't have answers. I'm confused. Take me to this rock that's higher than I. I can't find it on my own. And then what does the psalmist do? You have been a shelter to me. Father, I remember when things were so difficult five years ago, five months ago, 15 years ago, and you were faithful to see me through it. You have been my shelter. I know that you're going to see me through one of the blessings that comes with affliction is it is really healthy for our prayer life if we'll allow it to. We find ourselves crying out to God, knowing his comfort. And 2 Corinthians 1, it says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble. With, with the comfort we ourselves have received by God. God says two things about himself, that he's a father of mercies and he's the God of all comfort, to comfort us in our pain, to comfort us in our affliction. And as we pray, as we're suffering and we pray, we experience the comfort of God. There's no suffering that's greater than the comfort of God. God is a God who knows pain. 
During this month, we celebrate Christmas. We focus in upon Jesus Christ and his incarnation. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus knows what it's like to live through this life, to wake up tired and weary, to have the stomach flu, much more so to experience rejection, to know the acute pain of death, to be there at the funeral of Lazarus, standing at his, his grave, ultimately at the cross, where Jesus had his beard ripped out, spit upon, crown of thorns, nailed to the cross, whipped and beaten, experienced the rejection of the Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knows pain. Christ knows pain. He understands the pain that we're in this morning. Others may not understand, but God understands. That's from the perspective of Jesus, but how about the perspective of the Father? The Father looks down upon his Son to see him in pain and agony. As a parent, it's so hard to see your kids suffer. If it's a good cut and they've got to get stitches and staples, you're like, oh man, I would much rather take the staples than to see my child have to take the staples. I wish it was my arm that was broken instead of their arm that was broken. To see them go on into life and into adulthood and struggle and have challenges, it's difficult to watch them go through pain. And the father's heart in watching his son suffer, but then the father poured out judgment upon Jesus. Jesus had to take the punishment for our sin. The father, the son, they know pain. He's the God of pain so that he can provide comfort in our affliction. This is the proper response when we're afflicted and we're suffering to call out to God in prayer. It's not always easy, but it's the place for us to go. We continue on in this verse. It says, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Psalms literally means praises. And this morning, maybe you're rejoicing. Maybe you got a promotion. You got a raise. It felt like the miracle on ice. You know, it's been eight years since you've gotten a raise, but you're getting a raise and you came in just with a a bounce in your step. Maybe it's just one of those mornings where everything kind of just seemed right. You woke up and the house was peaceful and you looked out and there was the beautiful snow and you're just like, I'm dreaming of a white Christmas, you know? And so you poured yourself an extra cup of coffee and what are you to do with that joy and that cheerfulness that you're feeling? Well, the appropriate response is to sing to God. It's realizing that God's the giver of all good gifts and glorifying him for those gifts by singing to him. And I hope that you know the joy of singing to the Lord. As we come in week after week on Sunday morning, Wednesday night, Saturday night, and sing to the Lord, no matter who the worship leader is or the band or the style of music of, I'm here to sing to God. I'm entering into his presence and giving thanks for his blessings that he's given in my life but not just here at church, but also in the car, as you're in the kitchen, in the shower, just going through life. There's a song of praise that's on your heart and you begin to sing it to the Lord. Now, some of you are really gifted in singing. It's a talent that God has has given to you and maybe this comes a little bit more natural for you to sing. For others of you, man, you couldn't sing on key if it, it was to save your life. Well, you can fulfill the scripture where it says, make a joyful noise. Can you make a noise unto the Lord and a joyful noise unto God? And God has glorified, perfected hearing. So he doesn't hear whether you're on key or not. He sees your heart. Praise the Lord, right? 
And so whether singing comes naturally or not, to know that this is the response to God's blessing in our lives, to sing unto him. In Ephesians 5, verse 18 and 20, it says, And do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord. Maybe it's a worship song that you know. Maybe it's a worship song that you make up as there's attributes of God that are upon your heart and you begin to make melody in your heart, giving thanks always for all things to the Lord, the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the appropriate response. There's a third person and a third condition in verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over them, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. This physical sickness that has come over someone's body, what's the appropriate response to sickness? Scripture says to call the elders of the church, more than one, plural, Allow them to anoint you with oil and pray for you. And by doing this, we're giving God an opportunity to work in our sickness. In 2 Chronicles 16, 12, the Old Testament, there was a king named Asa, A-S-A, and he had a severe disease in his feet. And he never came to the Lord and gave God an opportunity to work in his sickness. And this is what scripture tells us. Yet in his disease, he didn't seek the Lord, but the physicians. Now, please hear me in this. I don't want anybody to be confused on this. What the scripture is not saying is it's not wrong to go to physicians. It wasn't wrong for King Esau to go to physicians. What was wrong is he didn't give God an opportunity to work. So we should come and we should lift our sickness up to the Lord, call for the elders of the church, allow them to pray for us, plus go to the doctor. And for those churches that believe that it's a lack of faith to go to the doctor, I've got a challenge for them. They never think it's a lack of faith by taking their car to the mechanic. What's the difference, right? A mechanic's been blessed by God to know how a car works. So your car's broken? Sure, pray for your car. Maybe God's gonna do supernatural and kind of raise Lazarus from the dead there. But if that doesn't happen, by all means, take your car to the mechanic. And it's the same way in our physical bodies. I believe that God does and can heal supernaturally. I also believe that God is the one who's the author of all good things. And he's blessed people in this area of medicine. So by all means, use it. It's not a a lack of faith to, to go to the doctor. But also we want to remember here what the scripture says is allowing the Lord to have the opportunity to heal in the midst of of sickness. Why more than one elder? Because if one elder prayed for someone and they were healed by God, that elder may think, man, there's something special about me, or or word gets out and the church starts to think, well, that one particular elder pastor, he's got the healing mojo, and let's go to him to receive prayer. And if you've got a multitude of elders praying for the sick and the Lord heals, then God receives the glory. What's up with anointing with oil? Why does God say anoint with oil? In the Old Testament, anointing with oil was for the priests, the prophets, and the kings as they came into those offices. Also in the time that James is writing, oil would be used for medical purposes. I believe the purpose here in James is it's an action of faith. 
God's simply saying this is something to do by faith and obedience to God's word. There's nothing magical about the oil. If anybody tries to sell you magical healing oil, you're getting ripped off. No, there's nothing sacred about the oil. It's simply an act of faith. We do anoint with oil here at the end of the the service. Opportunity, if you're sick, come and receive prayer. Pastors will be available to to anoint you with oil and and pray for you. And we are walking in obedience to God's word in this. Don't get nervous. Uh, We're not going to take a big bottle of olive oil and pull it over your head and have it dripping down. It's a little bit of oil placed upon your forehead. In verse 15, it says, and the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. This is the response, just like the the response for affliction, just like the response for blessing. This is the response for sickness. And the Lord says the prayer of faith will raise him up. And some have grossly abused this scripture and believing that everybody who's sick, if they're prayed for in faith, they will be healed. And I want to challenge that this morning. Write it down and look at it more closely. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the apostle Paul, he had a thorn in his flesh, a physical infirmity in his flesh. And he prayed three times that God would deliver him. And what did the Lord say? My grace is sufficient for you in weakness. And God didn't heal Paul. Now you would have a hard time convincing me that Paul didn't have enough faith. We've prayed for hundreds of people over the years here at Rocky Mountain Calvary. And guess what? There's been a few times where God has brought supernatural healing. And there's also been many times where God has brought the ultimate healing and took someone home to be with the Lord. And the prayer of faith is according to the way that Jesus taught us to pray, not my will, but your will be done. So the way that we should pray for someone as they're sick is, God, we believe that you can heal. And if you desire to, Lord, by all means, would you do it? But we also trust in your will. You know what's exactly best. When we believe that God's going to always heal in this life, and that's what the prayer of faith means, we lose sight of what God's ultimate plan for us is. God does desire to take us home at some point because heaven's that good. He went to prepare a place for us and he's gonna receive us unto himself and precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of the saints. So there's times where the Lord will heal. There's times that the Lord will take someone to heaven. Continuing on in verse 15, it says, and if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. Here, James is talking about the person who is sick. There are some times that the sickness is caused by sin. And notice that I did say sometimes, not every time. It would be wrong to assume that every sickness is a result of sin. We know from Mark 2 and John 5, two different men, that their physical condition was a result of sin. But we find in John 9 that there was a man who was born blind. And the disciples are like, who sinned? The parents or this man who was born blind? So if, if he then had sinned, he would have had to sin in the womb in order to be born blind. And what did Jesus say? Nobody sinned. The parents didn't sin. This man didn't sin. But he was born with this blindness so that the glory of God could be revealed. So please don't go around this fellowship if someone's in sickness and going, well, the reason that you're sick is because there's unconfessed sin in your life. And 
man, that's not the heart at all of God. If they are in sin, man, God's going to reveal it to them. And many times sickness is allowed in our lives because this is the sinful world that we live in. This is the condition that we live in. But if, the scripture says, if he has committed sins, then he will be forgiven. It brings us to the fourth condition, the person that's in the circumstance of trespass. Confess your trespass to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Confession is so healthy in our relationship with God and relationship with one another. When we're in trespass and in sin and disobedience, the first place that we need to confess is the Lord. He's who we've sinned against. And he's the one who provides the forgiveness. Then after confessing to the Lord, the scripture tells us we need to open up and confess to another brother or sister in Christ. And the reason is so that they can pray for us and pray for one another that you may be healed so that you're not alone in this struggle. And the effective and the fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And what I found in my life when there's a struggle with sin that that sin is broken when I open up and share with someone else. And Amber and I have decided and committed in our marriage that we're going to be open and honest with struggles that we have so we can pray for one another. And when I open up and share with her, I'm in a, a men's group on Friday mornings. And when I share with those guys that I value so much in that men's group, there's, there's a healing that happens and takes place. I, I meet with other pastors in our city when I share with them. But this is a hard thing to do, but this is when the victory comes in our lives. And if we'll take God's word and we'll begin to open up to one another and confess faults to one another and then be prayed for, the healing will come. We need to use discernment and who we're opening up to. And this is illustrated in the story of three pastors that got together. They're all going to share their struggles and confess them to one another. And the first pastor's like, man, I really struggle with whiskey. I've kind of fallen back into that. Find myself getting drunk after all my services. And, you know, the second guy's like, man, I really struggle with money and honesty and integrity and money. And then the third pastor's like, well, well, I really struggle with gossip and I've got some phone calls to make, you know? <laughs> so you don't want to just go air out your struggles to any person you want to pick a, a righteous man. You want the prayers of, of a righteous man. And righteousness is found in Jesus, but there's also that practical righteousness of walking with the Lord. And so you want to look to, to find that person and open up to them. Practical wisdom suggests this. Men should share with men and women should share with women unless it's your spouse. There's been many people inside of the body of Christ that start opening up with their struggles with someone of the opposite sex who isn't their spouse and they end up compromising in a greater way. Use wisdom in who you're sharing your heart with, but open up. And if someone shares with you, and they, they do confess their faults to you, let's say your spouse, after hearing this message, you come home this afternoon, and they kind of drop a bomb on you, and you're really surprised by this struggle in their life, you have a, a variety of responses that you can have to that. But the one that God would want you to have is understanding that you're to pray in faith that they've opened up their heart and now you're committing to pray for them. And as you pray for them, then God's gonna respond to that prayer of faith and he's gonna do a work and in and through their life. So someone does open to you, up to you, open up to me, open up to us, then we need to be faithful to commit to praying for them because God says, 
The kind of prayer needs to be fervent prayer. It needs to be earnest prayer. We need to ask, we need to seek, we need to knock, we need to keep going to the throne room of God on behalf of this person, not just push it out of the back of our minds. And then God says it's powerful. It avails much. Scripture gives us an illustration of a guy who prayed this way, and it's Elijah in verse 17 and 18. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Sometimes we think those recorded in the Bible, that they weren't like us, that somehow they didn't have struggles, they didn't have bad days. There weren't times that it was difficult for them to pray. And Elijah was just like us. He had a nature just like us in times of discouragement. In 1 Kings 18, these are the words of Elijah. And he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he prayed that he might die and said, it is enough. Now, Lord, take my life for I am no better than my father's. That's Elijah. That's the great Elijah. And he just confronted the false prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Then Jezebel says, I'm going to kill you. Elijah gets discouraged and runs for his life and says, God, I'm tired of living. I don't even want to live any longer. So please understand that Elijah is a person that we can relate to. Continuing in verse 17, he prayed earnestly that it wouldn't rain and it didn't rain on the land for three years and six months. Because of the compromise of worshiping Baal, this idol, God spoke to Elijah and says, you need to pronounce this drought. So Elijah prayed in faith and there was no rain for three years and six months, three and a half years. In verse 18, and he prayed again and the heaven gave rain and the earth produced its fruit. God spoke to him and says, the rain's coming and he prayed, he prayed earnestly and the rain did come. So if you've got your Bible this morning, turn with me to 1 Kings 18. Let's look at 1 Kings 18. I want us to take a moment and look at the way that Elijah prayed. 1 Kings 18, verse 41. Old Testament, after 1 and 2 Samuel. If you're on your iPad or your smartphone, you beat us. You got there quicker. You guys like how my voice is more booming this morning? You know, I've always wanted just a big lumberjack voice being from Oregon, but instead I got, open your Bibles to James chapter 5. <laughs> so here we are, verse Kings. 18 verse 41. Then Elijah said to Ahab, go up and eat the, and drink, for there is the sound of abundance of rain. This is right after idolatry has just been dealt with on Mount Carmel. God's now going to restore with rain. So Elijah speaks in faith and says, Ahab, go eat and drink. Have a celebration. The rain is coming. So Ahab went up to eat and drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Carmel. Then he bowed down on the ground, and he put his face between his knees. The intensity of which Elijah prays. It shows humility. It shows intensity. And he said to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. So he went up and looked and said, there is nothing. And seven times he said, go again. So the servant goes and looks out, no clouds, no clouds, no clouds, seven times, and Elijah keeps praying. He's persistent. This is the fervent prayer of a righteous man. Then it came to pass the seventh time that he said, there is a cloud as small as a man's hand. That's tiny. 
Got a man's hand way out there. Okay, Elijah, there's one cloud out there the size of a man's hand. What's the response to this? So he said, go up and say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Now it happened in the meantime that the sky became black with clouds and wind and there was a heavy rain. So Ahab rode away and went to Jezreel. Then the hand of the Lord came upon Elijah and he girded up his loins and ran ahead of Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Those superhero movies, they don't got anything on God, right? God just picks Elijah up by the shorts and says, come on, let's go. And he beats Ahab to Jezreel and here comes the rain. Church, keep praying. Is there something on your heart that you've been praying for? Has someone opened up about a struggle? You keep praying. You persist in prayer. You go the first time, you don't see anything. You go the second time, you go the third time. You know the word of God. You know the character of Jesus. And may we persist in prayer. Let's go back to James and we look at our third and last point. It's to rescue humbly. After responding correctly, we're to rescue humbly. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back. So the idea here is someone, they're wandering. They get distracted. They get off task. They lose their focus. They lose their way. And they're wandering from the truth. They're not walking with Christ like they once did. What's our response to be to that person? Scripture tells us here we're to turn them back. We're to rescue them. We're to go to them. And that's difficult. It's difficult to confess our own struggles, and it's also difficult to confront a brother and sister in Christ. But if we love them, we're not going to continue to allow them to wander. We're going to go to them. So how do we go to them? We need to go humbly. Jesus told us to first make sure there's not a plank in our own eye. We need to make sure that we're not wandering. We need to make sure that we're in the place that God would want us to be. Galatians 6 tells us, brethren, if a man is overtaken in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, considering yourselves, lest you also be tempted. We're to go in the spirit of gentleness, considering ourselves, not being prideful, realizing that we're capable of every sin underneath the sun, that at some point we're going to need someone else to come to us in a time of wandering. But the loving thing to do is to not turn a blind eye. The loving thing to do is to not say anything. It's to speak the truth in love. In verse 20, this is the reason why we go to him. Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the air of his ways will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. So if someone comes back from erring from their way, they're saved from death. Don't we know that getting off of God's path, sin, it brings death. Sin's going to destroy our lives. When someone's in a place of sin and getting off of the path of Christ, there's a dullness about them. There's something wrong about their spirit. There's no vitality that's there. It destroys them from the inside and out. And so we're going to them in humility, but also passion, saying, look, if you come back, it's going to save you from death. You're, you're headed towards a place of destruction. And there's that spiritual death but also there's possibly an eternal death. Because if someone errs from the truth and they walk away from Christ, that's a dangerous place to be. And you can try to figure out and argue were they never saved or did they lose their salvation? 
Those things can, can be discussed, but I do know this, that they're not, if they're not in a place of believing in Christ that particular day, that is not a safe place to be. And if they continue in a, a place of erring, and if that error is to the point of rejecting Christ, it could have eternal consequences. And so in going to them in love and in turning back, they could be saved from death and then covering a multitude of sins. Now, please hear this. If God allows you to do this in someone's life and they come back, you just cover the sin because it's covered in the blood of Jesus. That means you don't bring it up. You don't dig up those old corpse of death. You don't air it out. You don't speak of it. You just cover it. Love covers a multitude of sins. They're back with Christ. It doesn't mean you don't deal with the issues, but the sin's now been dealt with. They're walking with the Lord. There's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. There's good news here in verse 19 and 20 is God always welcomes back the prodigal. There's always the opportunity to turn back. And maybe this morning, the spirit of God is bringing you back through these two verses. You know in your heart, you're wandering from the truth. You're getting distracted. You're in a place that you never thought you would be. And my question for you is this. One is, are you tired of the pigsty? Are you tired of the pig pen? Are you tired of the life apart from Christ? And are you ready to come home? Do you remember what you had in Christ and come back to your father and he'll be running to meet you? My other question is this, is why go to the pigsty? Maybe you're halfway between the father's house and the pig pen of the world. Don't go all the way to the pig pen of the world. Do you hear me? Stop right in that point and say, Lord, I'm going to come back. Right where you're sitting right now in the midst of this service to say, Father, I'm coming back to you. I'm returning to your word. I'm returning to my first love and my first works. I'm going to be in your word. I'm going to be in fellowship. I'm going to tell others about you. And with this, we have the end of the book of James. Notice what's not here. There's no benediction. There's no doxology. There's no Paul conclusion of may the Lord bless you and keep you and all those kind of things. He simply says, here's the instructions. Now go do it. So in the vein of James, let's stand up and pray and go and apply God's word. Stand with me. Let's pray together.